Hey everybody, how's it going? Thanks for joining me this afternoon. I've got a great stream with a great guest that I think you're really going to enjoy. So we've been starting this deep dive into the thought of Joseph DeMastery, somebody who I think is very important, who definitely had an influence on me and has not really gotten enough love. So we are de uh, de we are diving in uh, to his essay on the nature of sovereignty. We started that uh, with an episode last week, and we're going to be continuing here today. Joining me for this is The Prudentialist. Thanks for coming on, man. Thanks for having me again on, Oren. Always a pleasure. Absolutely. Now, we started by reading this uh, whole thing last time, but it quickly became apparent that uh, we are not going to be able to make it through in a timely manner if we keep doing that. So switching up the format a little bit here, we've got our notes together, and we're just going to be talking through the different chapters. I'll still have them up on the screen. We'll still read uh, certain things off from it, but uh, that's where we're going to be going. So uh, this section, uh, the, the part we're going to be focusing on here is mainly about what makes a nation, what creates a, a nation of people. Uh, you know, Demaestra has an idea very different from what a, a lot of modern people who are influenced by the Enlightenment believe. A lot of people in the Enlightenment think that it is the uh, will of the people who get together and they reason together, they lay out the ideas, and that is what forges a nation once everyone has agreed to it. We we have this you know state of nature, but then we enter into a social contract. And and last time we kind of read through where Demaster picks that apart. He says, that's not what mankind is like. Uh, you're never in this neutral place or this, this kind of uh, savage place where there is no civilization. There was always some ember of uh, social construction that's going to lead us into what we make next. So he's already kind of debunked this idea of the state of nature and the social contract. And now we're going to move into what he believes uh, actually creates a nation. Now, be beginning here, he talks about uh, chapter four, he talks about the particular sovereignties and nations. And he starts by giving us this analogy of a, of a country as basically a child. He uses this like it goes through the phases of human aging, uh, much in the way that Spangler gives a morphological uh, kind of uh, presence to civilizations, how how they grow like a plant and eventually you know bloom and then die. He's giving this us this uh, the idea of the nation as a child that grows up. It ha he says in in a very real sense, nations have fathers, uh, and that he and he says what's really important to the beginning of a nation is a common identity and a common morality, especially a common religion, right? This, this common shared moral understanding of the world is going to be really key, and that's going to be the foundation an infant, uh, an infant nation is placed upon. Yeah, we're going to see in this section the sort of total breakdown that if you make your paper, or if you make a country based off some ideas on a sheet of paper, very quickly can that sheet of paper be torn up and rebuilt for any other purposes, and you lose any definition of your of your paper nation very quickly. And he comes right at multicultural uh, uh, multiculturalism, you know, right away. He says, look, you need a, again, that shared vision, that shared understanding. This comes through language. That's something that he mentions. You need, you need the shared language. And that language arises from the shared traditions, the shared background, this same understanding of the world and the way that we should look at it through a moral lens. And he says, you can, on occasion, you can get these hybrid nations where maybe you add you know, one nation and another together and they could become stronger, they could be become weaker. 
but there is a there is a scenario where we kind of bind these two together and they are successful but he warns that if you have a multiplicity of different cultures a multiplicity of different backgrounds uh, moral visions ideas about the way the world should work then when you try to bring those together you're never really going to get this uh this the synthesis that people are hoping for instead you're just going to get one assimilating all the others uh, now, for many people, that's a that's a good thing, right? They think of assimilation. We want immigrants to assimilate. But he says, you need to be clear what that means. That means the destruction of that identity, right? So if, if you're going to get a real assimilation, it's going to be the destruction of all the other identities into one. That's the only, the only way that the nation will be successful. And so that's something to, to consider when you're looking at multiculturalism. Once you introduce that element, inevitably there's going to have to be the destruction of all those other cultures in in a synthesis in you know kind of creation of one homogenous culture or the nation's just not going to work yeah we're going to see this as he references the italian states and the situations that come from losing say more papal authority over more national identities that are going to arise and i mean we we see this and he's not he's not the first man to come up with this we see this idea arise and Plato's The Republic about how, you know, the more of a polyglot sort of, if your nation becomes an economic zone, then you, the word nation doesn't really apply to you. That's right. And, the, you know, the next thing that he talks about here is why it's important to understand that institutions cannot be universal. Laws cannot be universal. Governments cannot be universal. He says that these things have to mold themselves to the character of the people. And so that's something that's really important because I think a debate a lot of people get into, you know, even people like us often who are interested in political theory, uh, you know, is what is the best form of government? What is the superior form of government? Uh, what if we could engineer a government uh, and then apply it to everybody? What would be that best government? And he says that's a really dangerous thing to do because governments are not something to simply be foisted upon people. It's not that you set up the right institutions, you balance everything perfectly, and then you can deliver that to you know to each person, each group of people across the world, and they will be governed in the best possible way. He says, no, these things have to be altered. They have to be changed. They have to be suited each different group of people. And if you try to force that onto people, it's going to go poorly, which is, I think, something that people are more and more realizing, you know, uh, when we talk about democracy and you know, everybody has democracies. George Bush's, you know, vision was democracies all over the world. We have to force this onto everybody. He says, no, that's not how it works. Monarchy, aristocracy, democracy, these things are not universal. And each one of these has to be altered if it's going to fit with the with the people it's actually working for yeah and you're going to see this in this section and throughout the you know chapters that we cover that you know some countries may find democracy just inhospitable others will find it to be welcoming and vice versa you know there's not a one-size-fits-all government for any type of people i mean you see this especially in uh the recent quagmires in the middle east whether in our invasion of iraq and afghanistan famously both rand and ron paul had said it was a very foolish idea that we thought we could invade iraq and somehow topple saddam hussein and turn the iraqi government into the next generation of thomas jefferson it's just not going to happen 
And these particularities exist into which Demeister argues, of course, and from the biblical sense that, you know, peoples are apportioned, their lines are easily defined and drawn, and that trying to make this a grand universal project of democracy and human rights, even inside the French National Assembly that he's criticizing, is not possible. And to make that model applicable in sort of this expansionist nature, which we saw during the French Revolution with their wars, didn't work out. And even to this day, it's a failed project. I mean, this is why I think when we define universalism or, or progressivism or the woke, you know, it's a it's a systematizing form of homogeneity. And whenever you homogenize something, you destroy everything that was unique, a cultural identity and ethnic identity. It all gets washed away into blue jeans, McDonald's and TikTok NPC videos. Yeah, and I think that's a really important thing. I've talked about this some. I wrote a piece on on why the woke isn't going away. And I think a big reason as to why it isn't going away is it is that homogenizing force that you're talking about. It is that thing that erodes all other identities, all other peoples, and then allows kind of our current regime to think that it's going to run like a global empire. And so he's saying that this this is kind of doomed to fail from the beginning because you cannot universally apply these things and in any attempt to do so, so becomes this kind of thin gruel, right? Like we can all feel that about wokeness and its ruling ideology. I think it's pretty obvious to many people that it shares uh, the nature of a religion. And he says that is something that you need to bind people together is a religion, is a shared moral view. But it's really thin. It's really, it's it falls apart under any kind of stress. But I want to read this section real quick. We're not going to read everything, but I do want to read this section real quick because I do think it's particularly good. He says, the general objects of, uh, uh, the general objects of every good institution must be modified in each country by the relationship uh, relationships that spring as much from the local situation as from the character of the inhabitants. It is on the basis of these relationships that each people should be assigned a particular institutional system which is best, not perhaps itself, but for the state for which it is intended. There's only one good government for a particular state. Yet not only can different governments be suitable for different peoples, they can also be suitable for the same people at different times, since a thousand events can change their inner uh, inner relationships of a people. That's really critical. Okay, I think that's really important here, because what he's saying is, first, he's not saying uh, it's all just relative, right? You you, you could just pick whatever you government. You know, one, he says, no, there is only one correct government, but it is only the one that is correct for that specific people. So it's not relativism. It's not, oh, you can just pick whatever government you want and that's fine. It's that there's a particular government that is correct, but it is always only suitable for that particular people. And really importantly, that government does not stay eternally correct. It is not that form of government is not always the form of government that should always govern those people over a thousand years or so, you know, so like people will change. The, the needs of the people change. The character of the people will change. And eventually the form of government that was the correct form, you know, hundreds of years ago may no longer be the form. And so he says the important thing is to remember that it's about the people, right? And what is good for the people and what is necessary for the governments of people, not strict adherence to one form of superior government for everybody for all time. And so I think it's really important because if you look at something like the Roman, you know, empire obviously is going to be the, the thing that everybody goes to. With this, but you know, Rome went from being a king, you know, it had kings, and then it was a republic, and then it went back to uh, being uh, kind of a monarchy un or an extended one under the emperor, 
And so it went through phases. There were the, the people were of a different character. They needed different leadership styles. And that meant that the government of the nation changed along with the people. And he's saying that is a normal thing. That's not unique to Rome. It's not unique to that period of history, but it's something you should expect over time. Yeah, and we're going to see this. I mean, even in our own country, this is where you get sort of Yarvin's idea that like the French republics, we've had our own versions of it. The characters and nations of the people will change based on its needs, based on our technology, how we interact with one another. Uh, that also applies to immigration. That's the same thing that we opened up with there at the beginning. It's just that even if you homogenize the American character, or any nation's character will change and so will your government. There has always been a great deal of discussion on the best form of government without consideration of the fact that each one can be the best in some instances and the worst in others. Therefore, it should not be said that every form of government is appropriate to every country. For example, example, liberty, since it will not grow under every climate, is not open to every nation. Also very important, right? Again, when we talk about delivering democracy and liberty to everybody, every human heart you know, yearns to be free. He says, not really, actually. That That's not true. Not every uh, nation is for this. And you know who else said that? The founding fathers, right? <laughs> the, the Constitution is for a particular people who are virtuous, who are religious, who follow the Ten Commandments. They're biblical. They, you know, it is that liberty comes after you have the virtue that establishes the, the ability of self-rule, right? It, it's not the liberty that creates the virtue, it's the virtue that creates liberty. And if you don't have that, then maybe liberty isn't something that would actually benefit your nation. A drug addict, freedom does not help a drug addict, right? <laughs> like that that does not help to have infinite money and the uh, option to do whatever we want. If you're a heroin addict, that's going to destroy you, right? And that's what he's saying here. The more one thinks about this principle laid down by Montesquieu, the more one feels its force. Uh, the more it is contested, the more strongly it is established by new proofs. Thus, the absolute question, what is the best form of government, is, an, is, is, as, is as insoluble as it is indefinite. Or, to put it another way, it is as many correct solutions as there are possible combinations in the relative and absolute positions of nations. So again, the key here is that, there, that while there is a correct answer to what is the best form of government, the question is always, for whom? Right? It's for which group of people, for which nation? It is not a universalizable thing. It is not something that you can just put together in a lab and force on to everybody. It is something that is very particular to the people. He also says here that this means that the social contract is a chimera because it, these different peoples are not going to create this out of whole cloth. Like they're not just going to come together and decide, oh, let's sign a compact that creates the best form of government. This is something, and he again, we talked about this in the first episode that he is very explicit about the importance of divine intervention, uh, divine providence, uh, and the way that that is going to influence a people. People are created in a particular way. They are have a specific character that comes from God, and that is where these things are going to flow from. Yeah, I think it's a good time to, to move on down. All right. So I don't know how deep you want to get into five. This is basically him dunking on Rousseau for not understanding uh how legislature works i don't have a ton here other than just like rousseau is wrong about legislatures and he doesn't understand uh kind of why they're important you know he talks he says he says it's interesting the the one thing that i think is interesting because he says this also in six it's in five and six they're basically yeah. the same the same chapter 
And he says, uh, Rousseau talks about the importance of the legislature speaking with the voice of God, right? But but he doesn't understand that he means that in just kind of flowery language as where Demetrius is like, no, seriously, that's where law comes from. If your legislature is not communicating the will of God, then it's not doing its job. Again, something that would uh, rankle a lot of you know our more uh, atheistic or classically liberal uh, friends in in some ways. Uh, but he's very direct about this. Is you know that 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 is truly what is the job of a legislature is or a legislator is is to effect effectively transmit the things that are important to the people that have been put on their heart by by the divine. Yeah, no, I was going through my chapter, the section of mine, mine's from the Imperium Press version, but uh, my only notes that I had from here was just that, uh, you know, whenever we give up power, when kings give up power to make laws or to legislate it, they're actually, it's an abdication of power. And he says that um, these are, you know, banal truths everyone knows, which are absolutely foreign to Rousseau. Uh, that he wishes to prove. But, you know, then referencing Lycurgus, like when he gave laws to his country, it became by the abdication of the throne. And these words obviously signify that a legislator, being the king, abdicated kingship the moment he wished to give laws to his country and put himself in a position to do so. Um, and I think that, you know, he's he's pointing out that uh, Moses, and biblically speaking, is one of the most, is the most famous legislator of all. These things mm -hmm. are based on divine power. But, you know, when you wish to become a legislature, it is an abdication of monarchical or more centralized authority rather than just a collection of legislators trying to do so. And because not every man can be a king, the idea that we can give power to everybody and that they can govern themselves, as we made, we sort of made fun of this last time in the last episode where, oh, all of a sudden, you know, if we let everyone in this nation of France, you know, get the chance to live forever, they can be sovereign over their country like once every like, you know, 84 years or something. Yeah. That's of course not going to happen. And this is the same thing he points out here. Not every man is born a king. Not everyone has that divine backing, that divine right of kings that we've seen. And so the idea that anyone can become a legislature through the will of the masses is laughable. And Rousseau thinks that this is just a, a magical idea that can work. This is how we get our, our Fettermans and our Dr. Oz's running for Congress and things like that. And he, you know, he points this out uh, at multiple places, but here for sure is how much of the enlightenment is the deconstruction of things that already work or already exist and breaking them apart and thinking that's clever, right? So like if we just break off the function, this function of the government and we isolate it or we change it just in this way, we reconstruct it on our own, uh, you know, uh, in our own mind. That makes us very clever. That makes this very novel. That makes this revolutionary. It's like, no, you're just taking something that already existed that naturally emerged and you're just making it worse. Right. And that, that so that that's kind of his uh, his case here, I think. Uh, and, and again, he makes that in, in multiple places, including here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I think he says it right there. If, if he means to prove that a sovereign cannot truly be a legislator in the strongest sense of a term and give truly constituent laws to the people by creating or perfecting their constitutional system, uh, I appeal to the whole history of the world. <laughs> yeah, De Demaster doing the the, uh, the the first like a gesturing to the room on fire meme. Like, like, yeah, like obviously this is the case. Look at history, and you know that's really important too. He, we're we're going to bring this this up in the next section. But his repeated appeal to history, and and he says how important it is to the Enlightenment figures to basically dislodge man from history, right? To to deracinate him, to uproot him, 
to to take to pluck him out of what we know to be true, what history uh, uh, says about him, and instead create this you know this savage this this guy out in the state of nature, or as we talked about the the John Rawls in the original position. This is always the trick that the Enlightenment wants to do, that liberalism wants to do, is take humans out of this river of history, remove them from the great chain of being. And say, no, we can just create, put them in a sterile environment. And once we've done that, then we can just reimagine man as we want to. And he says, you know, no, you, you just look at history and you can see that the thing that you're saying doesn't work. But you keep appealing to some, you know, to some uh, original position or some, something outside of human history so that you can construct this thing that just obviously would be tr- untrue if you looked at history itself. Yeah, I mean, a really good way to look at that would be trying to rearrange all the puzzle pieces. So all the pieces still match, but you're not getting the picture that's on the box that is representative of history. Instead, you get this ugly collage of just puzzle pieces and pictures that are out of place. And that's trying to reconstitute man in a blank slate in a way that is opposite of nature and from history. And you get an ugly collage rather than the painting that makes the civilization work. So in our next chapter here, he wants to talk about uh, who founds a civilization. And so he starts by saying that uh, civilizations are not a human work. Again, Demaestra does not shy away from his belief in God and the logic that should flow from it. He's very uh, comfortable sitting inside that theological tradition. And he says, look, uh, we cannot create uh, civilizations, men do not just create them a priori. They don't just make them uh, before anything. And that means that civilizations are birthed by a set of ideas, by a set of traditions. They are they emerge from the character of the people. And that character is often set by a leader. He says nations literally have fathers. They literally have people who bring them into being and that that character is going to be indelibly stamped onto the people going forward. He's really, in many ways, he's embracing that great man of history idea. Like, like he says that these these uh, natures, you know, the these uh, uh, kind of uh, these seeds of a people can sit dormant for years, you know, decades, centuries before a great man comes by and germinates, you know, brings them into being. And so they can sit there and you can have this this thing percolating, uh, you know, the, the, this kind of identity or this this worldview, uh, you know, kind of coalescing. But it's not until a great man come and comes and kind of forges that and births the nation into being that we really see this come forward. Yeah. And I, I think a really great example in this chapter uh, comes later down when he's talking about kings and he's talking about the nation of governments mm-hmm. uh can you about the differences between them he's referring to alfred henry ii and edward the first of england uh and he says here in fine uh nations are as nations are born literally are so governments born with them when we say a people has given itself a government it is to say as if we have given a character and a color if we know sometimes how not how to distinguish the foundations of a government in its infancy in no way does it follow that they do not exist See these two embryos. Can your eyes see the difference between them? Yet one is Achilles and the other is Thersites. Let, let us not take the developments for creations. And so if you if you know your stories of the Iliad and the Odyssey, you'll know that Thersites is this bow-legged sort of uh, ill-fit man who criticizes uh, Agamemnon out of turn. 
And he's just pointing out, like, listen, you know, you can have ugly people and ugly governments telling you to be ruled by spiteful mutants, or you can recognize that great men help engender the birth of great people and great countries, and they have to go outward and do so. And I mean, referencing uh, King Alfred's a fantastic example, you know, fighting against Vikings and other sea peoples and the Danes, and making sure that England as, you know, what becomes the sort of Anglo-Saxon country is birthed out of his own conquest and his own will to do so, preserving its ecclesiology, preserving its traditions, getting a more formalized understanding of where it comes from, because these people are willing to emerge and help sound, you know, sound out and what that government is going to be. And if you don't have those great men, and if you don't have people that are willing to take the reins when necessary, uh, nations will fall apart very quickly and you will be ruled by the spiteful and the wicked. Yeah, and he he also says that, you know, like you're saying, kings are, are critical here for him. And he says that even republics are birthed first by kings. And he says that these kings lay down fundamental laws that create the character of the people. And it's hard not to, to see that even in the birth of something like the United States. Obviously, uh, the United States is stamped with a very British character from the beginning. It has those deep roots that are tied to the British crown. And even though its identity is in throwing off the British crown, its first president, you know, basically acts as a, in a monarchical way and indelibly stamps himself onto the character. Washington has a, a deep uh, impact on kind of the identity and character of the people. And we see that it's always the imperial presidencies of the United States that kind of remake its image, right? It's guys like Lincoln. It's guys like FDR. It's guys who have this, this ability to kind of redefine who the people are and what their norms are going to be, what their expectations are going to be that can, that can forge them into one, you know, moral vision. Those are the people who often have the biggest impact and the biggest change on the way that the nation is going in the direction. And so even people who we don't think of as official Kings, that, that kingly presence that, uh, you know, that, that powerful executive presidents, uh, president presence is still what changes things even inside a Republic. And so he says that these are really important to, to kind of establish the way that people are going to go. And that's really where the constitution is birthed. And this is where he gets into this. And I've, I've done videos on this before because he talks about this in, in, in another work that's really important, which is the generative principles of, of kind of uh, constitutions. But this is kind of a, a, a small condensed version of that that he does uh, in this chapter. And it really talks about how uh, men never create a constitution. That's the, they always come in after the fact to kind of reinforce what already exists inside the nation. And he says one of the reasons that's so important, and I think this is this is really key, is that men never respect anything that they construct, right? They, they You can never truly respect something that you feel you completely created out of thin air, that you completely uh, generated. And we might say, oh, well, but Oren, like, that's what happened with the Constitution of the United States. It's like, well, think about that, though. We don't, there are certain parts of the Constitution that we know we're not allowed to touch because the founding fathers made them, right? The kings made them. They, they spoke those words into existence. And so those things are inviolable. So we might think about whether or not we can, you know, change certain laws, but we're not getting rid of the First Amendment, right? Because that's something that's like core to the identity that's laid down. We feel that's beyond the touch of the nation. If we tinkered with that, that would fundamentally change what the nation was. And so he says it's really important 
that we that that we view government that way because if we see it as just a creation only of ourselves then we'll be tempted to tinker with it we'll be tempted to tear it apart pure reason will destroy it and then uh you know we and we can kind of see that with the left now right it's like this is all just malleable this is all just something that we can change at a moment's notice so he's warning against that tendency that if we don't see the government as something that is in some way divinely established that is in some way linked to uh, the divine, then we will eventually destroy ourselves by tinkering with the fundamentals of our nation and who we are. Yeah, like on screen, that last paragraph here going into the next, you know, no, no important truly constitutional reform establishes anything new, like you said, like, well, we even when we founded this country, what are they building off of? They're building off of the republics in Switzerland, or they're building off the Republic of Rome and the democratic institutions of Greece. Like they're recognizing that things came before them, that there is sort of this lineage that they themselves are not birthing anything truly new or created. They're just trying to, again, make it work for the particularities of their people and their region. Um, and so even in American history, you kind of see the recognition of De Maistre's, you know, uh, central points about how governments are meant for particularities. They're meant for a particular people. And again, they're nothing particularly new because they're looking towards ancient, historical, and divine axioms that have worked in the past, such as Rome or Greece or in Switzerland. Yeah, and I think it's also important to realize that this is where then somebody with a, you know, a little more modern, somebody like Carl Schmitt, starts to pull when he is looking at things like political theology, right? That, that we will always echo our relationship with the divine in our government, that that will always be the way. And, and that's again, very uncomfortable. I think for a lot of people, a lot of Americans, a lot of, a lot of modern people, liberals, even conservatives to think about things that way. But he says, this is just an unavoidable part of human nature. You will see this that this is this is how your government is going to be formed it is going to be reflective of that relationship because if it isn't reflective you're going to tear yourself apart right and again he talks about this multiple times the danger of pure human reason that that not having it constrained by a vision by a moral vision that is connected to your understanding of uh metaphysics uh, to morality to the divine that is always going to be very dangerous. That's always going to just take your country apart. And it's, I think this one, one last thing here before we move on is where he's talking about how it is too easy for a nation to mistake its real interest to chase them desperately after what cannot be suitable for it. And at the same time, reject what is best for it. As we all know how harmful the errors in this field are, this is what made Tacitus say it is with his simple profundity. It's much better for people to accept a sovereign than to seek him. Um, and we, see this a lot, I think, in sort of conservative media circles about, say, like Caesarism or uh, what stage of civilization are we in in sort of that Spenglerian sense that well, what are the nation's interests right now and would a king solve them or can we look towards other parts of the world to do so? And when we do that, we often sometimes can miss the forest for the trees looking for particular issues. And um, sometimes it is best to accept a sovereign uh, when they come rather than to seek one out. Because when we seek one out, well, oftentimes we'll be squabbling and over what's the perfect solution uh, when the enemy is already inside the gates and, and, and sacking and pillaging the place. And I think sometimes it's best to acknowledge that we might have to work with what we have rather than uh, this mythical political Prester John out somewhere in the world. We also see here uh, in this chapter that he, you know, he, he rejects the idea that there can't be improvements. He's not saying 
you know, he says, you know, he's, he's going to meet that uh, expected uh, 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 criticism here. He says, I, I by no means intend to deny the possibility of political improvement through a brought about by a few wise men. I might as well deny the power of moral and physical education to, to improve a man's morality and physique. But this con- truth confirms rather than shakes my general argument by proving that human power can create nothing and that everything depends on the original aptitudes of nations and in- of individuals. So he's not saying, you know, he's saying, look, we can use rationality. We can improve things. We can uh, better things through our, uh, you know, through education, through learning, through the ideas of wise men. However, that is still dependent on what was already there. That 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 is an improvement it is an improvement in the sense that is already working with what existed It is not creating it out of whole cloth. It's not engineering it from the bottom up. And that's something that's really important because the left is always about that social engineering. Again, it's the idea that we can just break away from all common bonds. We can break away from all duties. We can break away from our roots. We can, we can completely remove something, put it in some sterile place and then create it and make it what we want. And he's just rejecting that idea. He's saying, look, of course we can improve ourselves. Of course we can improve our government, but it's always in reference to what came before. It's always in reference to what already exists. And he also makes another point that, uh, you know, elite theorists will be happy to see the massive men play no part in political events. They even, uh, they even respect government only because it is not their work. Their feeling, this feeling is written indelibly on their hearts. They submit to sovereignty because they feel that it is something sacred that they can neither create nor destroy. If through corruption and treacherous suggestion, they reach the point of effacing it in themselves, this preserving sentiment, if they have the misfortune to think that they are called as a body to reform the state, everything is lost. Uh, This is why even in free states, it is extremely important for rulers to be separated from the mass of the people by that personal respect which stems from birth and wealth for if opinion does not put a barrier between uh, it, itself and authority, its power is not outside its scope. If the governed uh, many can think themselves the equals of the governing few government will collapse. So again, very, very important for Demestra that there is a separation of understanding between the ruled and, and the rulers that there is a understanding that what is happening there with the government is not something that the people can just dismantle at any moment. Uh, because if they can do that, if they think that they can change that, if they do not believe that this is something that was kind of installed by something divine in some way, then they will tear it apart. And, you know, that that's kind of his uh, prediction there. And of course, he points to the French Revolution as his evidence. All right. So. Our next chapter here is eight. And uh, we were joking about this one uh, before we got started here. This is the death of theory cells. He calls for the for the end of philosophy. Um, or I sh- shouldn't be that dramatic. People might not know I'm joking. But what, <laughs> yeah, uh, probably. Uh, but what he's saying here is that uh, he, he, does, he does directly call philosophy a scourge. I mean, I guess I could just read it here. Uh, the more human reason trusts in, in itself and tries to rely on its own resources, the more absurd it is and the more it reveals its lack of power. This is why the world's greatest scourge has always been, in every age, what is called philosophy. For philosophy is nothing but the human reason acting alone, and the human reason reduced to its own resources is nothing but a brute whose power is restricted uh, to destroying. 
So again, uh, you know, he's very skeptical of the idea that just reason completely unmoored from any tradition, from history, from knowledge of the divine can bring about good. He says, in fact, this is this is the thing that destroys nations on a regular basis. Yeah, if you want to scroll down to our contemporaries, uh, I think it's in the next page. And I think that they're, yeah, these two paragraphs here are really important. Um, our contemporaries will believe it as they will, but posterity will have no doubt that the most insane of men were those who gathered around the table and said, we will separate the French people from their ancient constitution and give them another, this one or that one, it does not matter. Although this folly is common to all parties who have desolated France, yet the Jacobins spring first to mind as the destroyers rather than builders and leave in the imagination a certain impression of grandeur resulting from the immensity of their successes. Uh, so even though it's like that SpongeBob meme, I guess, like, we did it, Patrick, we saved the city. Like, you know, we we, we did it, Jacobins, we saved France, and you've killed thousands, and you've got us into bloody war. But as he's pointing out, and what DeMeister is discussing is, is that these delusions of grandeur, these, these passions in sort of the Christian sense of pride, and that we can do these things, the spiritual prelest. Uh, instead, what we've done, as he points out in that second uh, paragraph, uh, but the men who appeared on the scenes of the Constitutional Assembly really thought themselves legislators quite ser seriously and visibly that they could rule the France and to give it a political constitution. And he calls them bedlams of the world. And so these men spring only with the ideas of feebleness, ignorance, and disappointment. No feeling of admiration or terror equals this kind of angry pity inspired by this constituent bedlam. The palm of villainy belongs right to the Jacobins, but posterity will unanimously award the constitutionalists that of folly. Um, so the idea that you can somehow separate man from his natural condition, man from the order that had been there, the ancien regime, uh, was done so by people who thought that they could do it better and that pride got the better of them. And instead, France would uh, dive into a reign of terror. Thousands would die. And it would be out beyond a constitutional system where it's on its... Uh, what, fifth uh, iteration of its republic now, um, where rioting is a dime a dozen. It's sort of a French right at this point since the revolution. But even in America, we think that we can divide ourselves from the idea that, no, everyone can come in here. Just think about how great the food will be, or that we can separate man from his idea that he wishes to care about his country first and his neighbors and the law. And instead, no, we're going to care about faraway conflicts. We're going to rebuild the laws to ensure that you don't get a say in those matters. And in turn, uh, I think posterity will judge us just as harshly as the Jacobins have been judged by history. I wish that, uh, unfortunately, this edition is just a reader. It doesn't have everything. Uh, I was also working from the Imperium Press uh, edition when I was actually <laughs> taking notes. And it's sad because it had a great, had a great line in here that was just brutal. It was uh, religion crushing out the poison of reason. Uh, he talks about this here. Uh, you, we can read this part at least. Uh, he says, this is uh, the legislators have all felt that human reason could not stand alone and that no purely human institution could last. This is why they have, so to speak, interlaced politics and religion. So the human weakness strengthened by a supernatural support could be overcome. So, again, he's uh, he, he says this very explicitly in this passage that politics and religion will always intersect and that they must always intersect that they must undergird each other because there will never be a politics completely freed from this. And if you do try to completely free it from this, then he says what he calls the poison of human reason will, uh, will kind of uh, seep in. Also uh, in this chapter, he says, 
a lot of people will warn you about the abuse of this. And he says it is abuse like the, that, that, that the marriage of uh, religion and state power is abused. And that is something to watch out for. However, he says just because it's abused doesn't mean it's something that you can completely eliminate. He says that things are abused usually because they're actually originally something that's right and good. The reason we call it an abuse is that we recognize that there is a right and good use for it, that there should be, there is a paradigm for which this works. And to not do it in that way is an abuse of it. So if you're, you know, you have good fatherly authority, but then you use that to, you know, take advantage of your child or, or you know, harm them in some way, that's an abuse. That doesn't mean the fatherly power was bad. It just means that you have abused it. And that's, that's a corruption of what it is. And he says, just because uh, the relationship between church and state can be abused does not mean that it should then be eliminated. Instead, you should be guarding against that abuse and you should be setting the relationship back into its right place. Yeah, and I don't know if this reader version you have or uncovers it, but on that point of religion and political institutions, you know, it's it's far from perfect and enduring um, as far as any union of politics and religion are perfect. But this, I thought, was really important to what we're kind of seeing here in America and with the discussion over churches. Um, he references, of course, that like her just dis distinguished himself on this fundamental point. He would always seek the oracles for their aid, that everything that his laws were from religious precepts, that divinity intervened, so to speak. Um, on councils, treaties, war, and the admiration of justice. So when Lysander wished to destroy kingship at Sparta, he first tried to corrupt the priests who gave the oracles because he knew that the Spartans did not undertake anything important without consulting them. And I mean, we see this all the time now about, I guess the uh, Ryan Turnipseed calls the difference between free and state churches here in America. Like uh, a state church would be like those old, you know, early American New England style Episcopal churches that have, you know, BLM fists and gay pride flags outside of their old stone walls and wooden doors, whereas free churches still have the opportunity to preach the actual gospel and to preach the actual truths of religion. But knowing that the state and knowing that the regime can corrupt the priesthood, can corrupt the nature of religion, then that's how you get those obscure, obese, you know, uh, Lutherans in Germany that are saying, oh, God is queer or whatever. And this is how you can corrupt the values of a people and corrupt their traditions, because if they first see all of their ideas to be originally religious precepts, as in America, we certainly did at the beginning of the founding of this country. If you corrupt that, then you can easily find your way to depose of a king, depose of a people, and depose of a government. So any time that religion is targeted, whether by atheists or those antithetical to your own beliefs, they're not just trying to depose your religion, they're trying to depose your way of life. And it's really interesting. Again, most people, of course, think that separation of church and state is critical because it protects the institutions from each other. But I think what we've seen is now so many, you know, especially these, these mainline Protestant churches, but this is also seeping into to everything, sadly, you know, Catholicism, all, all these different branches, that the values of the state start to become the values of the church no matter what, right? The, the church will mold itself to authority, even if we believe with our the words of our mouth that these things are separate and they can be they can remain separate and that they can be different things and that protects them. What we see with our actions, what people, what humans actually do is look at the state religion and then they adopt it even inside 
their own religion, their own churches, which is why I always make that tweet. Progressivism will hollow out your religion and wear its skin like a trophy because this because the religion was not allowed to exist in the state in theory, but no state can ever be completely irreligious. There are no neutral institutions. And so it created a religion, a re it, it adopted a religion because that is the natural state of, well, I shouldn't say natural state of states. That's confusing, but that is the natural thing that states do. They will have a religion. You will have a relationship with the metaphysical. You will have a moral vision. That is what forges a people, as Demetrius says. And without that, a people are nothing. So a state will have a shared moral vision. It must in order to operate. And so it, because it was not allowed to have a Christian religion, it forged a new one. And once it forged that one, it didn't stay separate from the other Christian religion, didn't stay separate from these religions that had been locked out. Instead, those religions started to follow the state one. The, the Christian religion started to follow them. And that's why we have these woke priests. That's why we have this stuff, because they are adopting the beliefs of power, as people always will. And that's really uncomfortable for a lot of people. They want to think, okay, no, you know, the 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 masses are are gonna the the people are there's popular sovereignty and they're gonna be able to make their own decisions. But that's not what happens. And so that's why it matters what your state is is doing. That's why it matters what your elites believe in, because the people will always follow even your religion, even the things that are supposed to be separate, that are supposed to be connected to the divine to the divine if the state is doing something different if it's worshiping something different that will trickle down that inevitably will visit itself on the people and those religions that should have stayed separate that should have stayed loyal to god instead will will worship the religion of the state that's going to happen so the only question is what will be the religion of the state yeah and this is why when they advocate for separation of church and state they're just simply advocating for the destruction of what made a people a people. And I, I think that how he finishes that chapter before we get to chapter nine real quick, mm -hmm. I only wish to show that human reason or what is called philosophy is as useless for the happiness of states as for that of individuals. All great institutions, moreover, have their origin and their conservation elsewhere and that the human reason is mingled with these only to pervert and destroy them. So, I mean, this is how you can get rationalists advocating for, you know, killing your pets in order to solve a, a carbon crisis or something like that. I mean, any time that you wish to ad adhere to pure reason alone or rationalism uh, and you divorce yourself from, you know, moral precepts, whether they're divinely oriented or they've just been around because they've been around for forever. Uh, that's when you first start to reason, hey, maybe I could just kill the whole thing right here and right now. It's it's like arguing with yourself, hey, let's go get behind the wheel after having a couple of, you know, sliders and eight balls and go nuts. You know, it's just it's a disaster waiting to happen. I mean, have you ever met a happy philosopher? No, no. Right. We maybe, all Nick, may, maybe Nick Lamb. Uh, you know, uh, OK. <laughs> but, but I think he's a little too weird into that religious yeah, stuff. Yeah, but yeah, who, yeah. Knows? who knows? He, he may temper it enough with the yeah, with with. With obscure uh, so, Anglo-Protestantism, right? To 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 make, to not completely fall down that hole, but yeah, I think I think this is something we all know, uh, you know, that we see kind of acted out in real life. But again, it's just something that we've cut ourselves off from because we kind of worship uh, intelligence and reason, and we 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 elevate it above a relationship with the divine, which uh, he is definitely pointing to as a huge mistake here. All right, so finally, uh, you know, uh, he decides to mix it up a little bit. Most of the time, he's dunking on Rousseau, uh, but in this chapter, he decides to dunk on Thomas Paine, and he says, 
uh, you know, that he's he's wrong about the order of operations. Again, this is a consistent point he makes and a critical one. There's a reason he makes it over and over again in different ways because it's really important. The idea that the you know constitution is established, the laws are established, and once you have like an agreement of men, the total population gets together and they understand what's going on, then and only then do we actually get a nation. And he says, no, that's like the exact opposite of what really happens. You know, instead we have a people, we have a, a, a leader, we have the, the divine, and those things are what then get reflected eventually into a constitution. He warns about writing down too many laws, uh, saying that the, the constitution that has to constantly justify itself, that has to constantly, uh, you know, uh, come up with new ways uh, to secure a liberty or a right uh, is in trouble. That's the sign of weakness. And I think we can see that in America. We're obsessed, you know, with writing down things. Oh, we need a law that says you can't teach children about, you know, being a different gender at age eight. Um, you shouldn't need a law. Uh, that that should just be so clear and so self-evident that if you you know ever made the mistake of trying to do that, uh, you know, uh, some dads could fix that problem real quick. You know, like that 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 that's kind of you know that th that thing should be so deeply written into the human heart, into the the character of the people that no one needs to say that out loud because no one even would even start to do that. And so he says, the more that people kind of try to plan out a civilization by writing more things down, the more they try to secure rights and and, and privileges and things in writing, uh, the worse it gets, like the, the the weaker your civilization is. And very interestingly, I like this too. He he says that the Tower of Babel is, you know, is kind of the, the first attempt to plan out a civilization from the beginning, to draw it up together and build it on your own. Uh, and he kind of points out that, of course, God does not take kindly to this. Yeah, my, my favorite bit in this little essay and subject is he says that the most perfect constitution that was ever made for a people was that of Sparta, and they never left us a line of public <laughs> law to record yeah. or to, to translate. So, I mean, if you already know what you're doing, and then this goes back again to the, the just previous chapter, if you try to reason and plan out everything that we're, we're going to have a law for this, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, then all that you're doing, like Oren and I have talked about before, you're just doing that thing that Nick Land has talked about, that if you set a law here, that means you've defined where and when you can argue to get more power from it. This is why mm -hmm. Carl Schmitt builds so heavily off of Joseph de Maistre, because once a law is written, then you can decide what the state of exception is. And then you can find out who's sovereign very quickly and who can turn that law around. I mean, take I mean, not to... There's plenty of reasons to criticize Ron DeSantis for things, I guess, on his campaign trail. But like the law that he had signed into effect about stopping sexual education or whatever up until uh, the fourth grade, I think is what it was. Third grade. So, yeah, third, you can, yeah, you can. Yeah, you can. So what? Third eight, grade and under. Eight, eight years. In, well, uh, so your third grade and under is safe. But as soon as they're like eight or nine years old, then you can perverse them with transgender stuff like it tells you how weak it can be to just plan things out. If you were sovereign, the government would be like none of this crap. And if you do it, we're going to throw you in jail. But again, once we start planning things out, trying to do laws, trying to find ways to govern where the exception is going to be, um, this is how the task can never be carried through. And the, the problem that you're trying to address will only run rampant. And this is really interesting. This is very important because this enters into the debate that has happened on my channel. I've had both Curtis Yarvin and Chris Rufo on, not at the same time. Maybe I can I can make that magic ha happen at some point. <laughs> Uh, that that would be quite Please a do. Uh, quite an exciting time. 
Uh, but they, you know, they have very different ideas of kind of how this works, how you change culture, how you change law. And uh, Demaster is taking much more of a Curtis Yarvin approach here, right? So Yarvin would say passing laws like small ball that you can't actually enforce doesn't matter. Like that doesn't actually do things. What you want is a complete shift in the way that people understand and think about a subject. You want to make one uh, set of ideas uh, old and uncool and passe, and you want to make another set of ideas hip and interesting and influential. And that's his approach. The, the, the Rufo approach is we, we take substantial policy and law victories, something that we can plant a flag down and say, we passed a law and this is here. And so for Rufo, you know, getting the, the, you know, DeSantis laws pass are victories because even if they're weak, it shows that you can get something done. It creates a model. It, it moves the ball forward. It's about a game of inches, right? And Demaster is saying that's not really how this works, right? Like we, what, if you have to write all this down, if you have to pass the DeSantis law, that means the regime is weak. You are showing your weakness when you do that. And so uh, what you really want is a, a cultural force that is so powerful uh, that that is never done. Like you said, uh, you know, the, the Spartan, they never have to write it down because it's written into the hearts of their children. You know, that's how that's how he phrases it, which I think is really important. They didn't bother to write it down on a piece of paper because they they spent all of their time writing it onto the hearts of their children. And so. Uh, you know, I, I think it would be very interesting because another part of this, maybe I could get an academic agent on for, for this too, uh, at some point is, you know, he, you know, he is always saying, you know, culture is downstream from law. Right. And so, uh, very interesting in this sense, uh, if he thinks that the small laws matter or if it's only the big laws matter, I, I think, I think there's a lot of very interesting questions about political theory, the flow of power, the flow of ideas and what actually changes uh, a nation and then the direction of a government uh, kind of wrapped up all in this discussion. Yeah. And there's a, a section in this chapter that I, I find is really important when we talk about like the separation of powers or even uh, when we see dueling narratives, he says, you know, uh, he's referring to Rome and the Roman Republic about the, the powers of the people and the Senate. And this was the nature of the Roman constitution. But he says, when sovereignty is shared between two powers, the balancing of these two powers is necessarily a combat. If you introduce a third power with the necessary strength, it will immediately establish a tranquil equilibrium by gently inclining sometimes one side over the other. This could not could take place in Rome by the very nature of these things. It was always the alternating jolts of the two powers that it maintained. And the whole of Roman history presents the spectacle of these two vigorous athletes who grapple, who roll, and by turn victor or vanquished. Um, but returning, of course, to England and also Thomas Paine's concept, like the, the sovereignty even now in America with the court system, like we, we're ruled by judicial fiat. They, they give one side to the other. And this is why a lot of Congress and a lot of special interest groups your, your power is between unelected bureaucrats on one hand and on the other, the Supreme Court. If you want the most honest five minutes of, of an American senator saying anything, go look up Senator Ben Sass's remarks during the Brett Kavanaugh hearings. He will tell you very clearly that Congress doesn't do its job. It will write laws that will only be carried out by unelected bureaucrats. And when people get upset, they go to the place for their only relief in this country which is the Supreme Court. And even then, the Supreme Court has no power because it has to fight two things at once. Its own internal squabbles about, you know, dealing with what's holy 
i.e., you know, per precedent um, that we just talked about earlier today in this uh, episode. But secondly, it also has to deal with the people. And we saw that even more vibrantly when it came yeah. to the Dobbs decision about abortion. Those were people threatening to kill those people. There was a guy that broke into Brett Kavanaugh's house. I mean, this is this illustrates the weaknesses of our own system the white house, about where sovereignty is the white house actually encouraged people to break the law and 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 go and protest on the grounds of these people's houses and intimidate them so yeah that's very very clear uh, and you know he he talks about also you know the roman republic like that there's just there was never this there's no writing down about the importance of dividing powers that was manifested by those by the the institutions of the senate and the tribune and things emerging from a natural division you know and so the, there's no need on paper to kind of justify those those divisions because they emerge naturally and he says and you know the, this natural emergence is important he defends for instance the english constitution saying well it's important that it's not a written, written constitution because the rights that are now uh, enshrined have emerged over time. They've, they've grown from uh, the character of the people and its interactions with the nobility and its beliefs and who they are uh, you know, and, and what the moral vision should be. And that's what gives it its resilience in his, in his mind is specifically that it has been created over time, that it is part of the history of the people. Demaster would very much be against this idea of like originalism that just sits around and like, you write the document and then it just means what it means forever. He would very much be of the understanding that, you know, constitutions can and will and must change as time goes by. And that's important because if you, if you delude yourself into believing that constitutions are just written down and then they're there in perpetuity, then you will not understand why these things are changing under your feet. And I think that's a lot of what has happened to conservatives. They're pointing to the rules and saying the rules are written down. I can see them. These are the rules. And it's like, great, but no one has played the game that way for a hundred or more years. So yeah, I mean, like, a, a good example of that would just to be asked conservatives, how well is originalism or textualism holding up? Mm -hmm. That school of thought has not done as much as I think it is important to consider things like the 14th Amendment, because, I mean, if we contextualize it, what does it say? Well, those things are about newly freed slaves in the aftermath of the War of 1861. Great. What does it have to do with gay marriage? Fantastic argument on paper, but if you don't have the force to back that up and you don't have the cultural will to power to maintain that that is only applying to this, then yeah, it can be definitely used for, for gay marriage or for, you know, transgender stuff that's being subsidized by the state because it violates the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, which had nothing to do with those things. But because these things are written down, because we point to the rules rather than actually pointing to the culture that we're supposed to be maintaining um, you see a lot of conservative loss after loss after loss, but they point to the rules like they've like they've done some great point. And this is why Sam Francis called so many of these things beautiful losers. Yeah, that's a really good point. It, you know, conservatives point into the rules instead of pointing to the culture that gives birth to them. Yeah, that that is, I think, really critical. Uh, just so often the we we are echoing a set of platitudes about how the country is supposed to be run instead of looking at the culture, having that context of history, having that, uh, you know, what was going on at the time and why those things matter and bringing that argument forward, bringing that logic forward and keeping that fresh in the minds of people rather than just, 
well, we we recited the rules and therefore kind of civilization will continue. All yeah, right, guys, just keep pointing to the laws. It'll all work out. <laughs> this is hypocrisy. Um, <laughs> so so uh, we've got some super chats stacking up. We'll go ahead and pivot over to the questions of the people here. But before we do that, Mr. Prudentialist, what are, should people go for your great work? Is there anything that they should be looking for? Yeah, so uh, I'll be having a new video premiere tomorrow. It'll be taking a look at the subject of uh, Marshall McLuhan and how we look towards the East now as, as a culture and what does that really mean when we say we're orientalizing. Uh, that'll be out tomorrow morning, hopefully at 10 a.m. Central Time. But you can find me on findmyfriends.net slash The Prudentialist. I'm on Twitter, Telegram, YouTube, Odyssey, Rumble, um, really anywhere you can find me. Just go to findmyfriends.net and you'll see my name there. Look for the frog. Excellent. All right, let's go over here. Uh, first question, Davisar for five dollars. Take my patronage and keep up the great work, gents. Well, thank you very much, man. Definitely appreciate that. Uh, we've got uh, Bradley, uh Bradley here for fifteen Canadian. Uh, just a donation. Thank you very much. Really appreciate that, man. Uh, Creeper weirdo here for five dollars. So you're saying he could uh, have predicted anti-nationalism? I guess I'm in awe of human intellect and stupidity. Just wow. Uh, yeah, again, one of the things I like about Demaestra is that he predicts uh, a large amount of what we see here. Uh, he he was writing very close, of course, to uh, the Enlightenment, uh, French and American revolutions and, and all that going on. And uh, he sees a lot of the threads that would eventually lead us to where we are now. So it really lends him a lot of credibility, he calls his shots a couple hundred years in advance. Then uh, that uh, definitely shows you that he understood uh can you could really cut to the importance of the argument uh george w hyduke for 499 our religion and law is the tradition of our ancestors and is written in the hearts of our people chief seattle i mean yep this is this is something that pretty much every civilization knew until we made a concerted effort to forget it and that's exactly what demaster says over and over again right rousseau is specifically ignoring obvious things that everyone has known for a very long time so he can try to reconstruct society in his own way that's constantly demaestra's uh kind of criticism of uh rousseau and the rest of the enlightenment project and uh you know th this is not none of this stuff should be new none of this should be uh groundbreaking but we have just ignored it for so long we've kind of been sitting in the enlightenment stew for so long that we do have to go back and we do have to explain these things. We do have to rediscover these things uh, because uh, we simply did not grow up hearing them. I know I didn't, you know, and so there, it's really important to go back and look at this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this kind of highlights the exact thing that Demeister is saying, like every person's traditions and their laws are going to be particular to a group of people. But the one thing that is universal is, is that laws and traditions are, you know, they're universal in respects to the fact that, every group of people has them written on their hearts. And if we don't have them written on our hearts and we write them on paper, well, then things fall apart very quickly. Yeah. And so this is, you know, just, just, uh, I'm just going to go on an aside for a second. A lot of people, when you start talking about this stuff uh, and traditions and, and, and why these things kind of change from group to group and people to people, they start saying, Oh, this is moral relativism, right? This is all moral relativism. You're just saying that all of these are equal and all of these are, there, there is no right answer. And that, that is not what this is saying. Like the maestro said, there is a right answer. There is a truth. There is an absolute correct answer. However, God has made people different. He's made nations different. And so that answer differs from nation to nation. It is not, it is not relative in the respect that there is just no truth. There is no absolute truth. However, 
that is contextual to each nation and each people. And the God has written that on the hearts of those people. So that is universally true, like Prudentialist is saying, that that continually manifests and those truths are real, uh, but that they do adjust themselves, the institutions and their manifestations do change depending on how they are being practiced. Again, Christianity is true. Christ is king. However, the practice of Christianity does change from nation to nation. It significantly alters itself to the character of the nation. That doesn't mean that Christianity stops being true for that nation. It simply means that the way it is practiced, the way that that truth is practiced and manifests itself will be dependent on the people who are practicing. I mean, you'll just see the, the difference between like French, you know, exhibition of their form of Catholicism versus German or even Russian versus Greek forms of orthodoxy. That's how it works in regards to how it changes a people. And this is why the discussion over immigration is so important. It's why people talk about it as a civilizational issue. They'll say, oh, well, you know, a lot of these people coming from south of the border, you know, they have family values like we do. It'll all be fine. But when their ideas of values and traditions are either A, antithetical to yours, or B, so foreign and alienated from anything that is a part of the American tradition, then what laws or traditions will exist out of this? It goes very back to the beginning of what we said, that homogenization means the destruction of one or both peoples in their entirety. And this is why these issues are so important, because if the laws and traditions or things that you believe to be sacred and true matter to you, then all of a sudden those things can be erased overnight very quickly because people think, oh, well, they'll just be like us. All right. And shop rat two zero six seven for four ninety nine. The only example of the state of nature I can think of is when you first spawn into a Minecraft world. Yes. State of nature, but in Minecraft, make As sure you always goes, add yeah. in Minecraft when you're thinking about the state of nature and what you might do there. <laughs> Let's see. Oh, we got one. We got a couple more here. Uh, Let's see. Uh, Creeper Weirdo here for $2. So A is A, but culture is important. Yeah, again, there's this, there's this misunderstanding that just because the way that these things manifest in different cultures changes and you have to understand them in those contexts, uh, that you're not declaring, therefore, everything is completely relative and there is no, there is no absolute truth. That That's no... no Buddy, especially someone like Joseph de Maistre, would have told you there is no absolute truth. None of these people who understood that cultures and people are different and that their, their governments and their laws and, and these things will manifest differently because of their difference. None of those people would have told you there is no absolute truth. They, they would have 100% told you that there's divine truth. In fact, that's all de Maistre does is tell you there is divine truth. There is one true God. There is his truth. And his truth is written onto the hearts of these people. And it manifests as they, you know, they express it like that. That's what he's trying to say. And I mean, if you want a better example of that from De Maestra, go read his essays on consideration on France and go read chapter five of the French Revolution, considered to be anti-religious in character, a digression on Christianity. Like if you want an example of what he means, uh, I would highly recommend that you, you read that essay because he's like, oh, wow, all of these progressives are a bunch of anti-Christian atheists that want to divide religion from the hearts of man that are the French character. Always has been. Yep. All right. Uh, let's see. Uh, Utah's four, three, two, one for $1.99, the shitting of blood forges a nation. And that is, of course, true. And Demaestra, uh, being the most metal of all philosophers, uh, makes that very clear elsewhere in his work. Uh, you know, he has the famous passage, uh, the executioner is the cornerstone of civilization. Uh, he talks about the, you know, the importance of the sword, 
uh, the ability to wield the sword. Uh, he is definitely a, a guy who believes in both throne and altar, uh, to be sure. Uh, so that that's something that does not go beyond him at all. Um, but uh, he but he's talking here about the shared again what what binds the nation together. So obviously, uh, the the sword is something that's going to be necessary to to carve out uh, the nation to protect the nation. Uh, he says that in many places in his work. Uh, but here he's focused on what binds the the identity and the character of the nation. And here he's talking about that shared moral vision, those religious principles, uh, that that background, uh, the, those traditions, those characters that are written into the hearts of the people. Uh, that's what he's focusing on. In there. Yeah, it's like the bell curve meme. Both ends of the bell curve will say swords and the guys in the middle <laughs> are complaining about laws and human yeah. nature. And uh, Demaestra is definitely at the uh, right end of the bell curve there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, 100 percent. Again, this is why like Schmidt's decisionism comes from him like the, the like. The, again, I think it's so important to, to have that context of Demaestra as you then go forward to study some of these other rioters because you really understand that connective tissue, where those ideas flowed from. And I, again, I really appreciate that Demaestra never shies away from grounding his his reason and his logic, his his structures in the metaphysical, in its relationship with the divine, the divine in the truth of God's existence and how he has created man. Uh, those are all inseparable for him from an explanation of nations, sovereignty, governments, all that stuff. You, you can't talk about one without the other. And so I think that that's really critical. Absolutely. All right, guys. Well, I think we're going to go ahead and wrap it up as always pleasure talking with the Prudentialist. Make sure you're checking out his work. Uh, if you would like to go ahead and get these broadcasts as podcasts, please make sure that you go ahead and subscribe to the Orrin McIntyre show on your favorite podcast platform. And of course, if this is your first time coming by, the stream coming by the channel, please go ahead and subscribe. Thanks for coming by guys. And as always, I'll talk to you next time.